What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 11 of The Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley-Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 7. Health, Disease and Sanitation. Part 1. When I mentioned to a friend that I intended to devote one of the chapters of this book to the consideration of sanitation in the Middle Ages, he hinted that, as there was no such thing, this would partake somewhat of the character of the famous chapter on snakes in the history of Ireland. In this opinion, I hope to prove that he is wrong. There are many conflicting accounts of the general sanitary condition of a walled town in the Middle Ages, but although some have painted the condition of early London in a very unfavourable light, there is sufficient evidence on the other side to induce us, in taking a general survey of so large a subject, to be careful not to use too dark colours for our picture. Probably the town was healthier in ordinary times than in the country, because the regulations were stricter. But in time of pestilence it was doubtless worse, from the confined space and the want of fresh air caused by the closeness of buildings. We do not hear much of the health of London between the periods of pestilence, but occasional information shows how great was the mortality among infants. The vast disproportion between the births and deaths made the influx of immigrants from the country necessary to keep up the population. As a sign that the general conditions of life were unhealthier then than now, we may note that the expectancy of life in the Middle Ages was much shorter than at present. It is said that as large a number of persons died at forty years of age as now lived to seventy. Queen Elizabeth was the first of the twenty-three sovereigns of England after the conquest who attained the age of seventy, although Edward I indeed lived to his sixty-ninth year. Dr. Jessop gives a vivid picture of the frightful condition of town populations. He writes, quote, 
The sediment of the town population in the Middle Ages was a dense slough of stagnant misery, squalor, famine, loathsome disease, and dull despair, such as the worst slums of London, Paris, or Liverpool know nothing of. End quote. Dr. Charles Creighton, in his monumental work on epidemics, takes the view that we must receive with some scepticism the extremely unsatisfactory accounts of the conditions of old London. He points out that, while Erasmus gives a most repulsive description of the state of the houses, his contemporary and friend, Sir Thomas More, takes a much more flattering view. Dr. Creighton says, quote, some part of the rather unfair opinion as to the foulness of English life in former times may be traced to a well-known letter by Erasmus to the physician of Cardinal Wolsey. There are grounds for believing that Erasmus must have judged from somewhat unfavorable instances. End quote. Dr. Creighton further points out that William Harrison, Description of England, gives proof enough that the filthy flaws described by Erasmus had no existence two generations later, even among the poorer classes. Fitzstephen was quite satisfied with the salubrity of the city, and he becomes enthusiastic over the gardens and clear springs which abounded on all sides, and made the walks of those who took the air in the summer evenings so agreeable. In fine, he says, quote, the city is delightful, indeed, when it has a good governor. End quote. Sir Thomas More, at a later period, saw so little amiss that he was content to consider London as a fair sample of what he would wish the capital of Utopia to be. We know, at all events, that whatever its faults, it was in advance of foreign cities. It has been said that the English word comfort cannot be translated and a curious confirmation of this is found in the fact that in the old French contemporary account of Watt Tyler's rebellion, the word is introduced in a French context, as if there was no equivalent in that language. Dr. J. W. Tripe, in 1881, took as the subject of his inaugural address on assuming the presidential chair of the Society of Medical Officers of Health, the sanitary condition and laws of medieval England. Referring to this, a writer in the Medical Times and Gazette says, quote, His description of the streets and houses of old London, and of the habits of our forefathers, though most graphic, was not new. But few, we think, have any idea of the antiquity of sanitary, nuisance removal, and river conservancy acts, and Dr. Tripe has therefore done well to again set forth the accounts of them that have been exhumed from the records of the city. Rude as they may seem to modern notions, they ought to have sufficed for the prevention of the epidemics which, from time to time, decimated the population, if they had not, like so many more recent enactments, been in advance of the age, and consequently remained for the most part dead letters. End quote. Before entering into particulars as to means taken for the protection of the city from disease, and as to those upon whom the duty was laid of carrying them out, it will be necessary to make a few remarks upon the healing art in the Middle Ages. It may be presumed that at all times large numbers suffered from illness and required medical aid, yet none has come down to us relating to the treatment adopted by the doctors. 
Unfortunately, the medical men of the Middle Ages do not appear to have trusted to themselves or to their own practical knowledge. Instead, they put their whole trust in the little they knew of Greek practice which they learnt from the Arabs, so that, even when writing on cases that came under their own observation, they give but slight information respecting the clinical treatment they adopted and were afraid to express an opinion without the authority of a great name. Dr. Norman Moore says, quote, The basis of medicine is the patient. End quote. This being so, as the patient always exists, the medicine man must always have been required. Those whose duty it was to combat disease among the Saxons seem to have been of little account, if we are to judge from the Reverend Oswald Cockaine's collection of leechdoms, wort cunning, and starcraft of early England, published in the Master of the Rolls series, 1864, and Dr. J. F. Payne's Fitzpatrick Lectures on the History of Medicine, 1903. The Saxon leech received a professional education and was often learned, although he did not advance knowledge. He seems to have placed more reliance upon charms and magic than upon any sensible treatment. He compounded recipes of the most incongruous character and paid special attention to the use of herbs but few instances of cures performed by him are recorded. It is not until after the conquest that we are able to find the first signs of the noble profession of today. It is said that medieval medicine first began to emerge from obscurity in the 13th and 14th centuries. The Jews and the clergy were among the first to practice medicine. A noted Jewish physician is recorded by William of Newborough as practicing at King's Lynn at the end of the 12th century, but shortly afterwards the Jews were driven out of the country, and we hear no more of them except of an occasional physician who managed to escape the general outlawry of his nation. The clergy also, in course of time, largely gave over their noble attempts to heal their fellow citizens, and a medical profession was gradually formed. John of Salisbury died 1180, the friend and counsellor of Thomas a Becket, who is called by Bishop Stubbs, quote, the central figure of English learning for thirty years, end quote, and may therefore be considered to some extent as an authority on the subject, had a very poor opinion of the medical profession of his day, and rated its members roundly for their ignorance and incompetence. He affirmed, that they had two maxims which they never violated. Quote, never mind the poor, never refuse money from the rich. End quote. There was no school of anatomy or surgery throughout England in the age of Chaucer and Wycliffe, but the medical schools of Salerno, Naples, and Montpellier were attended by Englishmen. St. Luke is usually considered as the patron saint of the medical profession but in the Middle Ages he was to a great extent dispossessed by St. Cosmas and St. Damien, two brothers who practised as physicians in Cilicia and were martyred in the early part of the 4th century. These were the patron saints of the company of barber surgeons, but the fellowship of surgeons, whose history has been written by Mr. Darcy Power, kept St. Luke's day as well as that of St. Cosmas and St. Damien. 
Chaucer found room for the Doctor of Physic in his wonderful gallery of medieval portraits, and the very vivid picture he gives of the studies and practice of this worthy. It is drawn with the poet's tolerant humour, but he ends by saying that the Doctor loved his gold, and all accounts appeared to corroborate this opinion. Quote, with us there was a doctor of physic, in all this world ne was there noon him lick, to speak of physic and surgery, for he was grounded in astronomy. He kept his patient a full great deal, in hours by his magic natural. Well could he fortune the ascendant of his images for the patient. He knew the cause of average maladi, were it of hoot or cold, or moist or dry and where they engendered and of what humour, he was a very parfit practiser. The cause he know and of his harm the root, anon he af the sick man his boot, full ready had he his apothecaries to send him drugs and his lecheries, for each of him made other for to win, here friendship was not new to begin. Well knew he the old Esculapius, and Descorides and Icrufus, Old Hippocras, Haley, and Gelin, Serapion, Razis, and Avicen, Avroa, Damasien, and Constantine, Bernard, and Gateston, and Gilbertin. Of his diet measurable was he, for it was of no superfluity, but of great nourishing and digestible. His study was but little on the Bible, in sanguine and in purrs he clad was all, lined with taffeta and with sendal and yet he was but easy of dispense, he kept that he wan in pestilence. For gold in physic is a cordial, therefore he loved gold in special. End quote. Chaucer here shows great learning and knowledge of the history of medicine. He gives a full list of the Greek and Arab authorities, and also of the men living nearer to his own day. Bernard was Bernardus Gordonius, the professor of medicine at Montpellier in Chaucer's time. Gilbertin was Gilbertus Anglicus, and Gateston was John of Gaddesden. Footnote. Dr. Poor has analysed the different points in Chaucer's description, and explained the various allusions of the statement that the doctor's line of study had little to do with the Bible. Dr. Poor writes, quote, This line is frequently quoted to show that the scepticism with which doctors are often charged is of no modern growth. The point of the line is, however, to be found in the fact that Chaucer's doctor was certainly a priest, as were all the physicians of his time, and that the practice of medicine had drawn him away, somewhat unduly perhaps, from the clerical profession to which he also belonged. End, quote. End of footnote. Gilbertus Anglicus, author of A Compendium Medicinae, about 1290, is said to have been the first English practical writer on medicine, but as Gilbert quotes a master Richard, there may have been a still earlier English writer on the subject. The book contains the first description of leprosy written by a European. Little is known of the particulars of his life, but he is said to have been a chancellor at Montpellier. He travelled in the east at the time of the Crusades, probably during the Third Crusade in which Richard I took part. John of Gaddesden, 1280-1361, was a doctor of physic of Oxford, graduating from Merton College, Oxford, who subsequently obtained a large practice in London. 
He was in priest's orders and held a stall in St. Paul's Cathedral. His famous medical treatise entitled Rosa Anglica was written about the year 1305. It treats of fevers and injuries of all parts of the body and soon became a medical textbook throughout Europe. In his book, there is an account of his special treatment of smallpox. He wrote, quote, Let scarlet red be taken, and let him who is suffering smallpox be entirely wrapped in it or in some other red cloth. I did thus when the son of the illustrious King of England suffered from smallpox. I took care that everything about his couch should be red, and his cure was perfectly effected, for he was restored to health without a trace of the disease. End quote. Gaddesden was court physician to Edward II and Edward III, and seems to have taken advantage of his position to exact high fees. He recommended his contemporaries to make arrangements about payment before undertaking a case. The clergy were forbidden by Pope Innocent III, 1215, to undertake any operation involving the shedding of blood and subsequently they were forbidden to practice surgery in any form. From this cause the practice of surgery largely came into the hands of the barbers. We shall see later how the profession was divided between the military surgeon and the barber surgeon, but here we have only to deal with the physician. We learn from Riley's memorials that Roger Clark of Wandsworth was placed in the pillory in May 1382 for pretending to be a physician. He was brought before the mayor and alderman and charged with deceit and falsehood by Roger at Hash. Quote, Whereas no physician or surgeon should intermeddle with any medicines or cures within the liberty of the city aforesaid, but those who are experienced in the said arts and approved therein, the said Roger Clark knew nothing of either of the arts aforesaid, being neither experienced nor approved therein nor understood anything of letters. End quote. He pretended to heal Roger at Hash's wife Joanna of her bodily infirmities by making her wear an old parchment leaf of a book rolled up in a piece of cloth of gold. This being of no avail, Clark was adjudged to be led, quote, through the middle of the city with trumpets and pipes, he riding on a horse without a saddle, the said parchment and a whetstone for his lies, being hung about his neck. End quote. This man was evidently an impostor and was properly punished for obtaining money under false pretenses. But many of the recipes adopted by the recognized physicians would probably be as ineffectual as the charm of Roger Clark. John de Gaddesden made a disgusting plaster of dung, headless crickets, and beetles, which was rubbed over the sick parts to cure the stone and we are told in the Rosa Anglica that, quote, in three days the pain had disappeared, end quote. It was very long before the doctors gave up the making of extraordinary plasters and decoctions. Apparently they had the assistance of laymen on occasions. Dr. Furnival has printed in his edition of Vickery's Anatomy of the Body of Man, 1888, a series of ten recipes by Henry VIII and his physicians, Dr. Augustine, Dr. Butts, and Dr. Cromer, taken at random from the Sloan Manuscript 1047 in the British Museum. Among these are, quote, The King's Majesty's Own Plaster, 
a black plaster devised by the King's Highness, a plaster devised by the King's Majesty at Greenwich and made at Westminster to take away inflammations and cease pain and heal excoriations, a decoction devised by the King's Majesty and a cataplasm made ungment-like of the King's Majesty's device made at Westminster. End quote. A conjoint faculty of medicine and surgery was founded in 1423. On the 15th of May, 1423, the mayor and aldermen were petitioned for this purpose. Quote, the petition prays that all physicians and surgeons practicing in London may be considered as a single body of men, governed by a rector of medicine, with the assistance of two surveyors of the faculty of physic and two masters of the craft of surgery. There was to be a common place of meeting, consisting of at least three separate houses, one fitted with desks for examinations and disputations in philosophy and medicine, as well as for the delivery of lectures. The second house was for the use of the physicians, and the third for the convenience of the surgeons. End quote. The petition was granted, and on the 28th of May, 1423, Master Gilbert Keimer was sworn before the mayor and alderman as rector of the Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Keimer was a graduate of the University of Oxford and physician to the household of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and also an ecclesiastic. Dr. John Somerset and Dr. Thomas Southwell were sworn on the 27th of September to act as supervisors of physic. The former was also a graduate of Oxford University and a physician to Duke Humphrey. Of the latter's history, Mr. Power could find nothing. There is no record, quote, of the swearing-in of a rector of medicine after the 27th of September 1424, nor is there any other indication of the continued existence of a conjoint college after 1425. End quote. Dr. Keimer went to the west of England in 1428 and became Dean of Salisbury in 1449. He continued, however, to practice medicine. Quote, For in June 1455, he was summoned to Windsor to attend Henry VI in the fit of imbecility which attacked him after the First Battle of St. Albans. End quote. Little is known of the action of the physicians from 1427 until the College of Physicians was founded by Lineker in 1518. Surgeons. Barbers were of old humble practitioners in the art of surgery and performed minor operations such as bleeding, tooth drawing, and cauterization. They largely assisted the clergy, in whose hands the practice of surgery and medicine was almost wholly confined. The action of the popes, already alluded to, in forbidding the clergy to interfere in any matter connected with the shedding of blood as incompatible with holy office, caused the clergy to devote themselves specially to medicine and the duties of the barbers were thereby largely extended. Mr. Darcy Power has drawn attention to a matter which is of the greatest interest in the history of the profession, viz. that two types of surgeons flourished side by side in London during the Middle Ages. The military surgeons, who formed the aristocracy of the profession, and the barber surgeons. As early as the Third Crusade, 1189-1192, military surgeons, quote, were in attendance upon the kings and nobles, often in a purely personal capacity, but in the 13th century they had formal gradations of rank and were known as 
the royal surgeon, the common surgeon, etc. End quote. In 1308, Richard Le Barber, the first master of the Barber's Guild, who dwelt opposite the Church of All Hallows the Less in Upper Thames Street, was sworn at Guildhall, and in 1310, barbers were appointed to keep strict watch at the city gates, so that no lepers should enter the city. John Ardern was an early surgeon of Mark, who is worthy of special notice as one of the first English writers on surgery. He had an extensive experience in the treatment of wounds, and it is supposed that at one time he was attached to the English forces during the French wars in the capacity of field surgeon. He was born in 1307 and practised at Newark from 1349 to 1340, when at the age of 63 years he settled in London. He was specially famous for his treatment of fistula, and he made his great reputation by curing Sir Adam Everingham of this complaint after his case had been pronounced incurable by the chief doctors in France. Ardern had many distinguished patients and received very large fees. In his works, he entered very fully into the history of his cases and his mode of treatment, and when describing the manner of the leech, he throws a remarkable light upon the professional ethics and habits of his time. He was by no means reticent as to the best means of getting over his patients and making them pay well. The surgeon is told to, quote, beware of scarce askings, end quote. And as an example, Ardern says that, if he had to do with, quote, a worthy man and a great, end quote, he charged 100 marks, or 40 pounds, for a cure, quote, with robes and fees of an hundred shillings term of life by year, end quote. Of less men, he would take 40 pounds or 40 marks without fees, but he adds, quote, Never in all my life took I less than an hundred shillings for cure of that sickness. End quote. He counsels doctors to be careful in estimating the length of time of a cure, in fact, to suggest double the time he expects. If the patient wonders at the rapidity of cure and asks, quote, Why that he put him so long a time of curing? Sith that he held him by the half. Answer he, that it was for that the patient was stony-hearted, and suffered well sharp things, and that he was of good complexion, and had able flesh to hail, and fain he other causes pleasable to the patient, for patients of such words are proud and delighted. End quote. Ardern's instructions for the guidance of doctors are very sensible and they help us to form a correct estimate of the manners of the public who are patients. Dr. Poor, after giving an analysis of the surgeon's work, writes, quote, It is evident that John of Ardern was a consummate man of the world, and knew all the tricks of his trade. His fees seem to have been enormous, and indeed he is only one out of many examples among our early professional forerunners who made very large professional incomes. End quote. Mr. Anderson, the biographer of Ardern, remarks that although he called himself quote, Chirurgus Intermedicos, there is nothing to show that he possessed a master's degree or any formal license for the exercise of his calling. End quote. Mr. Anderson adds, however, quote, His writings prove that he was a man of clerkly attainments, 
with a good knowledge of latin and french and well read in the available literature of his profession quoting freely from the works of the medieval surgeons the arabs and even from the greeks End quote. mr anderson notes that there are no less than twenty-two manuscripts of the works of ardern in the british museum both in the original latin and in early english translations quote, some repeating or overlapping others in matter End quote. his book da cura oculi is dated from london in thirteen seventy seven it is not until the next century that a surgeon of equal distinction has arisen in england there must have been many incompetent practitioners in london in the fourteenth century an instance of which evil we find in riley's memorials john le spicer of cornhill in thirteen fifty four attended thomas de sheen who suffered from a serious wound in the jaw certain surgeons sworn before the mayor found that quote, enormous and horrible hurt on the right side of the jaw of thomas de sheen end quote, was incurable but they held that if john le spicer had been expert in his craft or had called in counsel and assistance to his aid the injury might have been cured when the charter was granted to the barber's company in the next century it is expressly stated in the preamble 1462 that through quote, the ignorance negligence and stupidity end quote, of various barbers and other practitioners in surgery many of the king's lieges had quote, gone the way of all flesh end quote. mr darcy power states that quote, a guild of surgeons distinct from the guild of barbers existed in london from time immemorial the guild was always a small body probably never more than twenty in number and sometimes dwindling to less than a dozen it existed and remained unincorporated at a time when many of the other guilds either vanished or were converted into companies the earliest notice of the surgeons guild occurs in 1369 this information is obtained from letter book g translated from the latin by riley quote, on monday next after the feast of the purification of the blessed virgin mary second of february thirteen sixty nine master john dunhewitt master john hinstoke and nicholas kildsby surgeons were admitted in full husting before simon de morden mayor and the alderman and sworn as master surgeons of the city that they would well and faithfully serve the people in undertaking their cures would take reasonably from them would faithfully follow their calling and would present to the said mayor and alderman the defaults of others undertaking cures so often as should be necessary and that they would be ready at all times when they should be warned to attend the maimed or wounded and other persons and would give truthful information to the officers of the city aforesaid as to such maimed wounded and others whether they be in peril of death or not and also faithfully to do all things touching their calling End quote. There is a similar ordinance dated April 1390, in which Master John Hinstock, Master Geoffrey Grace, Master John Bradmore, and Master Henry Sutton, surgeons, were admitted and sworn before the mayor. Mr. Power points out that this ordinance is specially interesting because the inspecting master surgeons are sworn quote, 
faithfully to follow their calling, and faithful scrutiny to make of others, both men and women, undertaking cures or practicing the art of surgery, and to present their defaults, as well in their practice as in their medicine, to the aforesaid mayor and alderman, so often as need shall be. End quote. Mr. Powers says, quote, The officers thus put under an obligation to perform certain public duties were the masters or aldermen of the Surgeons Guild, and it is certain that they took so wide a view of their duties as to harass the members of the Barbers Guild who meddled with surgery. Thus, in 1410, certain good and honest folk, barbers of the city, appeared by their counsel in the private chamber of the aldermen and sheriffs, and demanded that they should forever peaceably enjoy their privileges, without scrutiny of any person of other craft or trade than barbers, and this neither in shaving, cupping, bleeding, nor any other thing in any way pertaining to barbary, or to such practice of surgery as is now used, or in future to be used, within the craft of the said barbers. End quote. In 1417 there is, in the city records, special reference to the wardens of the faculty or craft of surgeons. Security was given by a surgeon to the chamberlain of the city to ensure due care of his patients. John Several Love, surgeon, undertook to pay twenty pounds sterling to the chamberlain if he, quote, should take any man under his care, as to whom risk of maiming or of his life might ensue, and within four days should not warn the wardens of the craft of surgery thereof. End quote. Half of this sum was to go to the city, and the other half to the faculty of surgeons. We now arrive at the time when another great surgeon arose. This was Thomas Morstead, surgeon to Henry V and Henry VI, and probably previously to Henry IV, who, Mr. Power says, made the first serious attempt to convert surgery into a profession. When Henry V, in the spring of 1415, entered on his campaign in France, which ended with the victory at Agincourt on the 25th of October, the medical arrangements of the army were very complete. Quote, the agreement, dated the 29th of April, 1415, is to the effect that Nicholas Colnett was to accompany the king for a year as physician to the forces in Guienne and France. He was to be attended by three archers as a guard, each archer receiving sixpence a day, whilst Colnett drew twelvepence for his own pay. Thomas Morstead, the surgeon, had also three archers assigned to him for protection, and he too received twelve pence a day, in addition to the usual allowance of one hundred marks a quarter, the pay, it is stated, for thirty men-at-arms, with a share of the plunder. Morstead was directed further to take with him twelve of his own craft, each subordinate surgeon to receive the pay of an archer, sixpence a day. The scale of pay here granted is very liberal. The ordinary day's wage of a labourer at this time was one penny. Each archer and each surgeon was considered to be worth the wages of six-day labourers, and the two chiefs double their assistance. Yet in spite of these attractions, the service was a perilous one, even though it only lasted a few months. Morstead engaged William Breedwardine to act under him, but he had such difficulty in securing the services of the twelve assistants that he prayed the king to grant his letters of privy seal directed to your Chancellor of England to cause him to deliver to your suppliant letters of commission under your great seal, 
by force of which he should have power to press twelve persons of his craft, such as he should choose to accompany him, and to serve your most gracious sovereign lord during your campaign. Morstead became a rich and influential London citizen, and served as sheriff in 1436. He died in 1450 and was buried in the church of St. Olav Upwell, Old Jewry, where he had built a fair new aisle. End quote. Footnote. William Hobbs, appointed in 1461, was the first sergeant-surgeon, a distinguished office which carried with it certain well-defined professional privileges. Thomas Morstead, William Breedwardine, and John Harwer, who attended Henry V in his French campaigns, did not receive this title, but are called simply Surgeons to the King. End of footnote. Dr. Furnival printed in his edition of Thomas Vickery's Anatomy of the Body of Man, a paper from a manuscript in the British Museum containing a statement of the pay of Navy surgeons in the reign of Henry VIII. The Henry Grace de Dieu carried two surgeons at twenty-three shillings and fourpence a month. Also, the Mary Rose and the Great Galley, with two surgeons each at the same pay, and nineteen other vessels, each with one surgeon at ten shillings a month. To return to the Fellowship of Surgeons, Mr. Power tells us that in 1435 the surgeons, then seventeen in number, became an established body, with a code of laws and regulations which still exist in a small vellum volume now preserved in Barber's Hall. In 1462 they obtained a charter of incorporation, and in 1492 were given a grant of arms. In 1493 the guild, quote, was living on friendly terms with the Barber's Company, for in this year the two guilds entered into a composition, dated the 12th of May, and signed by representatives of both bodies. This composition recognised the independence of the two fellowships of surgeons enfranchised within the City of London and of barber surgeons and surgeon barbers enfranchised in the said city. It was agreed that neither body should admit anyone except a regular apprentice to practice surgery without the consent and knowledge of the other, and to ensure this being carried into effect, every stranger seeking a license to practice in London was to be presented to the mayor by the four wardens of the two guilds. End quote. The end of the Fellowship of Surgeons came in 1540 when it was united by Act of Parliament, 32 Henry VIII, with the Company of Barbers. The granting of the charter on this occasion was the cause of Holbein's famous picture being painted. This picture still decorates the Barber's Hall in Monkwell Street. Allusion has already been made to the Barber's Company, to its first master in 1308, and to its incorporation by royal charter in 1462 by Edward IV. In 1376, the guild elected two masters, and at this time the members were sharply divided between the barbers proper and the barbers exercising the faculty of surgery. In 1390, four masters were sworn in in one year, but these were really only master and wardens, as stated by Mr. Young in his most valuable and exhaustive account of the Barber Surgeons' Company. The relative positions of the city companies has frequently changed. Thus, at one time, the Barber Surgeons were entitled to the 17th place, but in 1516 they only ranked as the 28th. In 1537, the Barber Surgeons formed the most numerous company in London, 
the number of freemen being 185. The next in order of numbers was the Skinners, with 151, then the Haberdashers, with 120, the Leather Sellers, with 113, and the Fishmongers, with 109. The rest of the companies numbered less than 100, the Bowyers being the lowest with 19. In 1745, the Surgeons, who had long chafed under the inconveniences caused by official connection with the Barbers, seceded and formed the Surgeons' Company, under the title of The Masters, Governors, and Commonalty of the Art and Science of Surgery, which was established by Act of Parliament. The Surgeons found a temporary home at the Stationers' Hall until 1751, when the premises known as Surgeons' Hall in the Old Bailey were ready for occupation. The company came to a premature end in 1796, and it was not until 1800 that the Royal College of Surgeons was established. End of chapter 7, part 1. End of section 11. Section 12 of the Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 7 Health, Disease, and Sanitation. Part 2 Hospitals. St. Bartholomew's Hospital. We are justly proud of the hospitals of the twentieth century, but one of them stands out from the rest on account of its early foundation and its enormous influence on the growth of professional feeling. In following the incidents in the history of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, we cannot doubt but that this is one of the most noblest institutions in London. The hospital was founded by Rahir in 1123 and refounded in 1546. We have little history of the earlier period, but the documents relating to the refoundation evidently echo the sentiments formed during the earlier period. Dr. Norman Moore, in his paper on the progress of medicine at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, 1888, writes, quote, We are in the very middle of the sacred land of medicine, and many of the great events in the history of medicine are connected with the particular region in which our hospital is, or have occurred in our hospital itself. End quote. Rahir, while building the hospital, continued his labours by founding the Priory, of which all that now remains is the Church of St. Bartholomew the Great. This consists of the choir and transept of the Church of the Priory, and a part of the site of the Close is marked by the present Bartholomew Close. The hospital and the Priory were independent, but connected. The relations between the two were revised by Richard de Eli, Bishop of London, in 1197, by Eustace de Fokenberg, Bishop of London in 1224, and by Simon of Sudbury, Bishop of London in 1373, and the two foundations were finally separated on the dissolution of the Priory in 1537. There is in the British Museum, Cotton Manuscript Vespasian Book 9, a life of Rahir written by one who had known those who knew the founder. The manuscript is a copy of an earlier one written in the reign of Henry II, 
within fifty years of the foundation of the hospital. This work, which is of great value, is described by Dr. Norman Moore and analysed in Mr. Morant Baker's Two Foundations of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, A.D. 1123 and A.D. 1546. Rahair has been described as the king's minstrel or jester, but there is no authority for this. The writer of his life says that he was a frequenter of the palace and of noblemen's houses, and made himself so agreeable as to be highly esteemed as the leader of tumultuous pleasures. He was, however, converted to a better state of life, but probably, as is the wont of those who write about conversions, the author rather darkens the picture of the courtier's early follies. Rahir determined to go to Rome, and after visiting the shrines of St. Peter and St. Paul, he was taken ill with a grievous sickness. He feared that God was angry with him for his sins, and he vowed that if God would give him health so that he might return to his own country, quote, he would make an hospital in recreation of poor men, and to them so there gathered necessaries minister after his power. End quote. In the night he saw a vision which filled him with dread. He seemed to be borne up on high by a beast having four feet and two wings, and set down in a high place. From this great height he looked into a deep pit, and he feared to slide down into it. Then appeared to him a certain man of great beauty and majesty, who fastened his eye upon him and said, O man, what and how much service shouldst thou give to him, that in so great peril hath brought help to thee? Rahir answered, Whatsoever might be of heart and of might, diligently should I give, in recompense to my deliverer. So the kingly man spoke again, I am Bartholomew, the apostle of Jesus Christ, that came to succour thee in thine anguish, and to open to thee the secret mysteries of heaven. Know me truly by the will and commandment of the Holy Trinity, and the common favour of the celestial court and council, to have chosen a place in the suburbs of London at Smithfield, where in my name thou shalt found a church, and it shall be the house of God. My part shall be to provide necessaries, direct, build, and end this work, and this place to me accept with evident tokens and signs, protect and defend continually it under my wings. And therefore of this work know me the master, and thyself only the minister. Use diligently thy service, and I shall show my lordship. Rahir, when he got back to London, made overtures to the citizens for the purpose of obtaining the land he required for building, and the authorities were favourable to his scheme, but they could not settle the matter until Henry I had been consulted, because the place at Smithfield was within the king's market. When the petitioner applied to the king, his plea was acceded to, and he was given authority to execute his purpose. It is not quite clear where all the money came from for the carrying out so vast an undertaking. But Rahir had a winning way, and from the king downwards he appears to have obtained liberal help. Before he could build, he had to drain the land, which was nothing but a marsh, and when he went there the only sign of civilization was a gibbet. The hospital, which from the first was a hospital for the sick, and not a mere almshouse, had a master, eight brethren, and four sisters. The first master was Alphen, 
an old man who had previously built the church of St. Giles, Cripplegate, and Rahir was the first prior. Alphen was also styled Hospitaller, or Proctor of the Poor, and the writer of the manuscript, Life of Rahir, tells how it was the custom of Alphen to go about begging for provisions and other necessaries for the poor men that lay in the hospital. He also looked after the welfare of those who were employed in building the church. Rahir had many troubles in his later life, and a large number of envious enemies spoke evil of him and did him injuries. There was a plot against his life, which failed on account of the confession of a penitent conspirator. He had, however, a good friend in the king, who helped him and confirmed his previous grant by a charter which gave full liberty and great privileges to the priory and hospital. When, therefore, Rahir died, after having been prior for twenty-two years and six months, he left his great establishment in a prosperous condition. Dr. Norman Moore points out that in the life of Rahir there is an account of the admission of the first patients of which we have any record. This was a man named Adwin, who came up to London from Dunwich in Suffolk in the reign of Henry II. There are many records of people who were supposed to be healed by praying at Rahir's tomb, but this man is described as having been admitted into the hospital and therefore a genuine patient. He was discharged, cured, but although his condition is described, no details of his treatment are given. Dr. Moore supposes that by long lying in bed, Adwin's muscles had become anemic and enfeebled. He was encouraged, quote, to move his limbs a little, and he found that he was able to move them much more than he expected. He began to make small objects, commencing with cutting and carving, and so at last was able to work again and to follow the craft of a carpenter. End quote. John Murfield, a canon of St. Bartholomew's Priory, wrote a general treatise on medicine entitled Breviarium Bartholome, about the year 1380, when Richard Sutton was master of the hospital. This book is of considerable interest, both as an early medical treatise written at a time when this form of literature was not general and for its connection with the hospital. Dr. Moore gives a full description of the contents and adds, quote, This picture is complete of the medical and surgical practice in St. Bartholomew's Hospital in the reign of Richard II. End quote. London was doubtless well able to supply the hospital with patients, and the dismounted knights in the jousts at Smithfield must have found it convenient to have their wounds attended to at once. It is recorded that when Wat Tyler fell from his horse, half dead from his wounds, he was dragged within the hospital gate and died in what is now the open space between the church and the outer wall of the great hall. The body was then laid in the master's chamber. Walworth, however, had the body brought out and beheaded, the head being sent to London Bridge to replace that of Archbishop Sudbury. By a composition dated 1373, the master of the hospital was ordered to be presented to the prior of St. Bartholomew's Priory after election, and previous to presentation to the bishop. The last master was John Brereton, who subscribed to the king's supremacy in 1534. The last prior, Robert Fuller, surrendered the priory to the king in 1540. About the year 1423, the famous Richard Whittington repaired the hospital at his own expense. Little more than a century after this, 
it was refounded by Henry VIII, but with very little pecuniary help from the king. In 1538, the mayor, aldermen, and commonalty of the city of London petitioned Henry VIII that they might from thenceforth have the order, rule, disposition, and governance of St. Mary's Spittal, St. Bartholomew's Spittal, and St. Thomas's Spittal, and the new abbey at Tower Hill, with the rents and revenues appertaining to the same, for the only relief of the poor, sick, and needy persons. In 1544, the king confirmed by letters patent the grant and establishment of St. Bartholomew's Hospital to the master and chaplains, but in 1546, a deed of covenant between Henry VIII and the mayor, commonalty, and citizens of London respecting the hospital was sealed, by which they came under the rule of the city. It is stated in the deed that, quote, His Highness, of his bountiful goodness and charitable mind, was moved with great pity for and towards the relief, aid, succour, and help of the poor, aged, sick, low, and impotent people. End quote. Additional letters patent were issued in 1547. In 1552 was published The Order of the Hospital of St. Bartholomew's in West Smithfield in London, with this text on the title. Quote, First Epistle of John, Second Chapter He that saith he walketh in the light, and hateth his brother, came never as zeal in the light. But he that loveth his brother, he dwelleth in the light. End quote. We have already seen how the later years of Rahir's life were darkened by the attacks of enemies, and a curious revival of similar slanders appears to have occurred when the hospital was refounded. And so virulent were the slanders that it appears to have been thought that a reply from the governing body was needed, and such a reply is found in the preface to the order. This commences as follows. Quote, the wickedness of report at this day, good reader, is grown to such rankness that nothing almost is able to defend itself against the venom thereof, but that, either with open slander or privy whispering, it shall be so undermined, that it shall neither have the good success which otherwise it might, nay the thanks which for the worthiness it ought. End quote. Henry VIII being dead, the governing body appeared to have felt it possible to tell the truth as to the little he had done in endowing the hospital. In fact, both Henry VIII and Edward VI have gained credit as founders when they really did little more than give buildings for public purposes that were of no use to themselves and then leave others to find the money to support them. The writer of the preface says that the slanderers ought to repent and praise both the deed and the doers so as to wipe away the slander. Quote, but forasmuch as it is doubtful whether they will do as they may, and of conscience are bounden, and the slander is so widespread that a narrow remedy cannot amend it, it is thought good to the Lord Mayor of this city of London, as chief patron and governor of this hospital, in the name of the city, to publish at this present the officers and orders by him appointed, and time to time practised and used by twelve of the citizens the most ancient in their courses, as at large in the process shall appear, partly for the stay and redress of such slander, and partly for that it might be an open witness and knowledge unto all men 
how things are administered there, and by whom. Wherein, if any man judge more to be set forth in word, then indeed is followed there be means to resolve him. End quote. The case in abstract is as follows. For the relief of the sore and sick of the City of London, Henry VIII was pleased to erect a hospital in West Smithfield for a hundred sore and diseased. He endowed it with five hundred marks a year, on the condition that the citizens found another five hundred marks. The citizens soon discovered that the king's endowment was far under what at first they had hoped. The five hundred marks rent was to come from houses in great decay, and some rotten ruinous, so that to make them again worth the wanted revenue was no small charge, and after paying certain pensions, etc., there only remained towards succouring the hundred poor sufficient for the charge of three or four harlots then lying in childbed. The citizens, therefore, to relieve their own poor and others coming daily out of all quarters of the realm, spent above their covenant of five hundred marks yearly, not much less than one thousand pounds, which enabled them to receive the number agreed upon. In spite of this, certain busybodies more ready to aspire occasion to blame others than skilful to redress things blameworthy indeed, rounded into the ears of the preachers their tender consciences. These preachers took upon them to make known these slanders, so that the good citizens, for their five years' loathsome work done for Christ's sake, received only open detraction and the poor a greater hindrance. During these five years, 1547 to 1552, 800 sick folk were healed in the hospital, and 92 died. The preface writer ends by saying that if any man spieth aught in the order worthy to be reformed, he will find those at the hospital glad and willing to reform it, and the city wish, if by any means it is possible, to raise the number of those receiving the benefits of the hospital from 100 to 1,000. The number of district paid officers is given as seven, in this order. 1. The hospitaller. 2. The renter clerk. 3. The butlers. 4. The porter. 5. The matron. 6. The sisters. 12. 7. The beadles. 8. Quote, there are also, as in a kind by themselves, three chirurgeons in the wages of the hospital, giving daily attendance upon the cures of the poor. End quote. The charges in this little book of orders are of great interest, and will well repay careful perusal. The surgeons are charged to the uttermost of their knowledge to help cure the diseases of the poor without favouring those with good friends. They are not to admit the incurables, so as to keep out those who are curable. When they dress any diseased person, they are to advise him to sin no more and be thankful unto God. They are to receive no gift from anyone, and never to burden the house with any sick person, for the curing of which person they have received any money. In conclusion, they are to report any wrongdoing to the almoners. The nurses of the present day would be surprised at the stringency of the instructions in the charge to the sisters. Mr. Morant Baker specially refers to one command, quote, And so much as in you shall lie, you shall avoid and shun the conversation and company of all men. End quote. 
and adds, quote, An order which, I have no doubt, was as implicitly obeyed then as any similar command would be now. End quote. At the end of the charges is, quote, A daily service for the poor, end quote, and, quote, A thanksgiving unto Almighty God to be said by the poor that are cured in the hospital, at the time of their delivery from thence, upon their knees in the hall before the hospitaller, and two masters of this house, at the least. And this the hospitaller shall charge them to learn without the book before they be delivered. End quote. Thomas Vickery, sergeant surgeon to the king, and the foremost surgeon of his time, was first appointed governor of St. Bartholomew's on the 29th of September, 1548, and in January 1552 he was made governor for life. He was the first medical officer of the hospital. Dr. Norman Moore describes his position as, quote, intermediate between that of the master of older times and that of the surgeons subsequently appointed. For some years he seems to have had both medical and general charge of the hospital. End quote. At this time, he had long held a distinguished position, although not originally a trained surgeon, and at first in small practice at Maidstone. In 1525, he was junior of the three wardens of the Barber Surgeons Company. In 1528, he was upper warden and one of the surgeons to Henry VIII. On the 29th of April, 1530, he was granted the office of sergeant-surgeon to the king, quote, as soon as Marcellus de la Moor shall die, or resign, or forfeit his post, end quote. And in the same year, he became master of the Barber Surgeon's Company. La Moor died, or disappeared from England, at some time after Easter, 1535, when he received his last payment. Vickery received his first quarter's salary as sergeant-surgeon on the 20th of September, 1535, and filled this distinguished office under Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary, and Elizabeth. The sergeant-surgeons were originally military surgeons, whose first duty was to attend the king upon the battlefield. John Ranby was the last to perform this duty when he attended George II at the Battle of Dettingen in 1743. In 1541, Vickery was appointed first master of the amalgamated company of barbers and surgeons, and in 1548, he is said to have published for the first time his Anatomy of Man's Body. This work was reprinted in 1577 by the four surgeons of St. Bartholomew's Hospital of that time, William Close, Will Betton, Richard Storey, and Edward Bailey who dedicated it to the President and Governors. The book is one of great interest, but Dr. Payne has lately proved that it is not an original work, but merely a réchauffé of an anatomical treatise of the 14th century, from which the greater portion has been transcribed word for word. The first physician of St. Bartholomew's was Dr. Rodrigo Lopez, a Portuguese Jew who was appointed about 1567. St. Thomas's Hospital. This hospital is almost of as great antiquity as St. Bartholomew's. The original hospital belonged to the canons of the Priory of St. Mary Overy and was situated on the west side of the road running south from London Bridge. In 1207, the hospital was destroyed in the fire which devastated the borough of Southwark 
but a temporary building was erected on the old site, now occupied by the Bridge House Hotel and the London and Westminster Bank. Peter de Rupibus, Bishop of Winchester, projected a new hospital on a more suitable site on the east side of the road, and appealed for funds for this purpose by means of a charter of indulgence, 1228. Quote, Behold at Southwark, an ancient hospital built of old to entertain the poor, has been entirely reduced to cinders and ashes by a lamentable fire. Moreover, the place wherein the old hospital has been founded was less appropriate for entertainment and habitation, both by reason of the straightness of the place and by reason of the lack of water and many other conveniences. According to the advice of us, and of wise men, it is transferred and transplanted to another more commodious site, where the air is more pure and calm, and the supply of water more plentiful. End quote. The new hospital was dedicated to St. Thomas a Becket the Martyr, and became independent of St. Mary's Priory. It was frequently referred to as Becketspital. The third building was erected about 1507, and in 1535, a short time before the dissolution of the religious houses, the custos, or master, the brethren, and the three lay sisters, had the charge of forty beds for poor and infirm people who were to be supplied with food and firing. The hospital was refounded in 1553 by Edward VI, and endowed with four thousand marks a year. It was dedicated to St. Thomas the Apostle, but was often called, in honour of Edward, the King's Hospital. The parish of St. Thomas Apostle Southwark contained within its walls the two hospitals of St. Thomas and Guy's, and was often called the parish of St. Thomas's Hospital. Thus the old name remained, but the dedication was changed from that of the famous saint of the Middle Ages to that of the Apostle St. Thomas. Dr. Payne, who wrote an essay, quote, on some old physicians of St. Thomas's Hospital, end quote, says that in old times the staff was exclusively surgical. Dr. Eliezer Hodson, who was appointed about 1620, was the first named that Dr. Payne could find, but he does not think that Hodson was the first physician. The building, having fallen into disrepair, was entirely rebuilt in 1701 to 1706, and the hospital remained on the same spot from 1228 until 1862, when the property was sold to the South Eastern Railway Company, and a new hospital was opened on the Albert Embankment at the southern end of Westminster Bridge. Lepers There were other medieval hospitals in London besides those now described, which were the two chief ones. Many smaller buildings in the suburbs were devoted to the reception of lepers. Dr. Creighton writes, quote, The remarkable ordinance of Edward III in 1346 for the expulsion of lepers from London seems to have been the occasion of the founding of two so-called Lazar houses, one in Kent Street, Southwark, called The Loke, and the other at Hackney, or Kingsland. These are the only two mentioned in the subsequent orders to the porters of the city gates in 1375, and as late as the reign of Henry VI, they are the only two besides the ancient Matilda's Hospital in St. Giles's Fields. Another of the suburban leper spittles was founded at Highgate by a citizen of 1468, and it is not until the reign of Henry VIII 
that we hear of the spittles at Mile End, Knightsbridge, and Hammersmith. End quote. Dr. Creighton adds that the lock was doubtless the house of the quote, leprosy apud Bermondsey, end quote, who are designated in the royal charter of one Henry IV, 1399, as recipients, along with the leprosy of Westminster, St. James's, of five or six thousand pounds. The village of St. Giles in the Fields is of great interest, largely because the place still retains some of its old special features. Up to the middle of the 19th century, when the rookery of St. Giles was destroyed and new Oxford Street was built on the site, the lines of its contour were little altered since the hospital was founded at the beginning of the 12th century. The Ordinance of Edward III, 1346, and the swearing of the porters of the city gates that they will prevent lepers from entering the city are printed in Riley's Memorials. Dr. Creighton states that, as far as he knows, the Ordinance of 1346 is the only one of the kind in English history, and adds, quote, The statutes of the realm contain no reference to lepers or leprosy from first to last. The references in the rolls of Parliament are to the taxing of their houses and lands. The laws which deprive lepers of marital rights and of heirship appear to have been wholly foreign. In England, Leprosy as a bar to succession was made a plea in the law courts. End quote. Doubtless there were many cases of true leprosy in the Middle Ages, but there was a great confusion of diseases under this generic term, and we are told that, quote, In some instances of leper hospitals with authentic charters, the provision for the leprous was in the proportion of one to three or four of the non-leprous inmates. End quote. It was a very terrible fate for a man or woman to be accused of being a leper, for the sufferers were driven from the haunts of men, and being in many cases uncared for, they grew worse and worse. The disease was largely caused by bad food, and this cause was quite neglected in many places. A monstrous ordinance of the Scottish Parliament at Schoon in 1386 is recorded in the ancient laws and customs of the Burrs of Scotland. Quote, Gif any man brings to the market corrupt swine or salmon to be sold, they shall be taken by the bailey, and incontinent, without any question, shall be sent to the leper folk. And gif there be now leper folk, they shall be destroyed all utterly. End quote. The Reverend W. Denton, in quoting this instance of horrible cruelty, writes, quote, Sir Walter Scott must have had instances of such economy in his mind when he put into the mouth of John Gerda the directions, quote, Let the house be read up, the broken meat set by, and if there be any thing totally uneatable, let it be given to the pure folk. Bride of Lamamur. End quote. Men sometimes took advantage of a charge of leprosy to injure an enemy. In 1468, Joanna Nightingale of Brentwood in Essex was accused of leprosy. She refused to remove herself to a solitary place, and appealed to Edward IV, who issued a chancery warrant for her examination by his physicians and certain lawyers to be associated with them. The Court of Inquiry reported that they found the woman to be in no way leprous, nor to have any sign of lepra. This case is recorded in Rymer's Fedora. 
There was another evil caused by the privilege of begging which was accorded to lepers, for men sometimes pretended to be lepers in order to avail themselves of this privilege. It is worthy of mention, in passing, that the two districts of London which have given their name to the extremes of high and low life, viz. St. James's and St. Giles, both have their origin in the leper hospitals of the Middle Ages. End of chapter 7, part 2. End of section 12. Section 13 of the Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 7 Health, Disease, and Sanitation. Part 3 The Plague. The greatest scourge among the epidemics which have devastated the world is the Eastern Bubonic Plague, which entered Europe for the first time in the 14th century. All epidemics, when they find a new field, appear to be specially virulent, and this was the case with the first appearance of the plague, which so terrified the inhabitants of Europe that they applied to it this ominous name. But the epidemic of 1349 has of late years received the new name of the Black Death, which distinguishes it in the popular mind from the later visitations. The name, which came from Germany, will not be found in the old descriptions of the plague in England. A writer in the Quarterly Review says, quote, The term de Schwarze Todd may have been used in Germany in the 14th century, but it does not seem to have been current in England before Hecker's work on epidemics was translated into English in 1833. End quote. The Black Death entered Dorsetshire in August 1348, moving on to Bristol, Gloucester, and Oxford. From Oxford, the infection marched to London, which city it reached at Michaelmas or November. It soon swept over the whole country. Dr. Creighton writes, quote, The Black Death may be said to have extended over three seasons in the British islands. A partial season in the south of England in 1348, a great season all over England, in Ireland, and in the south of Scotland in 1349, and a late extension in Scotland generally in 1350. The experience of all Europe was similar the Mediterranean provinces receiving the infection as early as 1347, and the northern countries on the Baltic and North Seas as late as 1350. End quote. This plague had the most momentous effect upon the history of England, on account of the fearful mortality that it caused. It paralysed industry, and permanently altered the position of the labourer. Ineffectual attempts were made to neutralize these effects by the statute of laborers and by enactments quote, that every workman and laborer shall do his work just as he used before the pestilence, that the servants of substantial people shall take no more than they used to take, and that laborers and workmen who will not work shall be arrested and imprisoned. End quote. The effects of the pestilence on the church and on morals 
is seen in the writings of Wycliffe and Langland. Wycliffe, who was an Oxford student, in 1348 predicted in his book The Last Age of the Church, the end of the world in 1400 at latest. The effect upon architecture has been dwelt upon by the antiquaries, upon the growth of the country by political economists, and upon the general health of the country by doctors, so that it is not necessary here to enter into further explanations. The statistics of the writers of the Middle Ages are of little value, and the estimates of those who died are very various. But the statement that half the population of England died from the plague is probably not far from the truth. In East Anglia, which suffered most severely, upwards of 800 parishes lost their parsons, 83 of them twice, and 10 of them three times in a few months. In Norfolk and Suffolk, 19 religious houses were left without abbot or prior. The details of the Black Death in London are not numerous, but Riley gives some particulars of mortality among the city companies at this time. In the Articles of the Cutlers, 1344, the names of eight wardens are given, and below it is stated that in the twenty-third year of Edward III's reign, five years after, they were all dead, and others chosen in their place. In the Articles of the Hatters, 1347, six wardens are named as being chosen on Tuesday after the Feast of St. Lucy, 13th of December, 21 Edward III, and a note is added that by the Saturday after the translation of St. Thomas the Martyr, 7th of July, 24 Edward III, they had all died. Four wardens of the Goldsmiths' Company are recorded to have fallen victims to the Black Death, and doubtless the other companies suffered in a like manner. The most striking fact in respect to the mortality in London is that recorded by Stowe in his Chronicle of 50,000 persons buried in Sir Walter de Manny's burial place in Spitalcroft, now the Charter House. Although doubtless the number is grossly exaggerated, it is certain that it was very great. One of the victims in high places was Dr. Bradwardine, Archbishop of Canterbury, who died at Lambeth on the 26th of August, 1349, just one week after he had landed at Dover from Avignon. In January 1349, the meeting of Parliament was prorogued because, quote, a sudden visitation of deadly pestilence had broken out at Westminster and the neighbourhood, end quote. Dr. Creighton writes, quote, For three hundred years, plague was the grand zymotic disease of England. The same type of plague that came from the East in 1347 to 1349 continuously reproduced in a succession of epidemics at one place or another. End quote. He goes on to quote Peinlich's Pest in Steiermark, i.e. Styria, 1877-1878, to show that similar cases occurred over Europe. From 1349 to 1716, 70 years are marked in the annals of Styria as plague years. The second great pestilence occurred in 1361, when the number of deaths was about a third of those from the plague of 1349. The mortality was greater among men than women. The third pestilence, of 1368 to 1369, is referred to by Langland in Piers Plowman. The fourth was in 1375 to 1376, and the fifth 
in 1390-1391. Dr. Crichton describes several other plagues and writes that, quote, In the decade from 1430 to 1440, there were no fewer than four distinct outbreaks of plague, three of them confined to London, and one of them, that of 1439, general throughout the realm. End quote. The constant recurrence of the plague must have taught the authorities some mode of treatment, but although certain sanitary regulations were made, which will be referred to later on, it is only incidentally that we learn what was done during the earlier visitations. Probably panic reigned generally in the time of the Black Death. Such writings as are left us give this impression, and there is little reason for surprise that it should have been so. Dr. Creighton has entered very fully into the history of the various plagues and the different expedients which were adopted to mitigate their severity. His valuable work is so thorough in its treatment of the subject that to a great extent I have drawn the following particulars from his luminous pages. The first plague order, of which the full text is extant, was issued in 1543. The following transcript is taken from an abstract of several orders relating to the plague, British Museum, Additional Manuscript Number 4376. Quote, 35 Henry VIII, a precept issued to the aldermen, that they should cause their beadles to set the sign of the cross on every house which should be afflicted with the plague, and there continue for forty days, that no person who was able to live by himself and should be afflicted with the plague, should go abroad or into any company for one month after his sickness, and that all others who could not live without their daily labour should, as much as in them lay, refrain from going abroad, and should for forty days after, illegible word, and continually carry a white rod in their hand, two foot long. That every person whose house had been infected should, after a visitation, carry all the straw and, illegible word, in the night privately in the fields and burn. They shall also carry clothes of the infected in the fields to be cured. That no housekeeper should put any person diseased out of his house into the street or other place unless they provided housing for them in some other house. That all persons having any dogs in their house, other than hounds, spaniels, or mastiffs, necessary for the custody or safe-keeping of their houses, should forthwith convey them out of the city, or cause them to be killed and carried out of the city and buried at the common laystall. That such as kept hounds, spaniels, or mastiffs, should not suffer them to go abroad, but closely confine them. That the church wardens of every parish should employ somebody to keep out all common beggars out of churches on holy days, and cause them to remain without doors. That all the streets, lanes, etc., within the wards should be cleansed. That the alderman should cause this precept to be read in the churches. End quote. Dr. Creighton says that this order was a development of the measures devised by the king or his minister before 1518, and probably in the plague of 1513. The wisps put out on the infected houses are replaced by crosses, which above are described simply as 
the sign of the cross. On the 15th of November 1547, it was ordered by the mayor, recorder and alderman, Weisskamites, that, quote, every householder of their several wards, which sith the feast of all saints last past, hath been visited with the plague, shall cause to be fixed upon the uttermost post of their street door a certain cross of St. Anthony devised for that purpose, there to remain forty days after the setting up thereof. End quote. The cross of St. Anthony was a crutch, such as was used by the crutched friars. It was painted in blue on canvas or board, and the legend under or over the cross was, Lord, have mercy upon us. In the plague of 1563 it was ordered, on the 3rd of July, that two hundred blue headless crosses be made with all convenient speed by the Chamberlain, and again, on the 6th of the same month, two hundred more were ordered. On the 8th of July, blue crosses were delivered to the bailiff of Finsbury to be used there. Dr. Creighton says that before the plague of 1603, the colour of the crosses had been changed to red. The white rod or wand was used in France as well as in England, as we learn from a letter of the Venetian ambassador to France, the 20th of November, 1580. Quote, this city, Paris, I hear is in a very fair sanitary condition. Notwithstanding that, as I entered a city gate, which is close to where I resided, I met a man and a woman bearing the white plague wands in their hands and asking alms. But some believe that this was merely an artifice on their part to gain money. End quote. The white wand was afterwards retained as the peculiar badge of the searchers of infected houses and of the bearers of the dead. In 1603, it had become a red wand, just as the blue cross had become a red one. The regulation about dogs is of great interest, as it incidentally shows that dogs were commonly kept in London houses for the purpose of protection. It was believed that dogs carried infection in their hair. Brassbridge, in his Poor Man's Jewel, 1578, relates how, quote, Not many years since, I knew a glover in Oxford who, with his family, to the number of ten or eleven persons, died of the plague, which was said to be brought into the house by a dogskin that his wife bought when the disease was in the city. End quote. The plague orders contained the clause against dogs to the last, and thousands of them were killed. A proclamation during the London Plague of 1563 was directed against cats as well as dogs. The early literature of the plague is very unsatisfactory and we have to come to a time much later than the medieval period for information as to treatment. The main point to the various regulations were isolation of the infected and special attention to sanitation. These, in principle, are in accord with the best opinion of today, but the way in which they were carried out left much to be desired. Those who were imprisoned in their houses must have felt that they were given over to death. Yet some of these patients did recover, and we naturally ask what was the treatment which caused these cures? Was the cure due to the doctor or to nature alone? The answer is not easy to find. 
Dr. Payne, in his inaugural address as president of the Epidemiological Society in 1893, specially alludes to the literature of the plague, of which he says, quote, The number of publications relating to the plague in Europe during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries is very large, those in Germany being probably the most numerous, while those published in England are comparatively few. We might expect, however, that those works published at the time of great epidemics would furnish us with valuable material for epidemic history. It is very disappointing, therefore, to find how very seldom these writings, whether of continental or English origin, have any historical value. What generally happened was this. When an epidemic broke out, or was expected in any particular place, some local physician thought it his business to furnish the public with a tract on the subject, and he accordingly compiled from the best authorities a pamphlet, good or bad, as the case might be. Such a physician, if he survived, would no doubt have been able to acquire some experience of the disease during its continuous, and if he had chosen to put this down in plain words when the epidemic was over, he might have done some service to medical history. But unfortunately, when the disease had once disappeared, the physicians seemed to have lost all interest in the subject, and it is only in rare instances that the medical literature of the plague contains any account of contemporary epidemics. One exception is Guy de Choliac's well-known account of the Black Death at Avignon. But we have nothing in English literature to compare at all with this till much later. The only medical work on the plague in the Elizabethan times which has much value is that of Thomas Edge, and this cannot be called original. It is not till after the Great Plague of 1665 that we have, in the well-known work of Nathaniel Hodges, Loimologia Sive Pestis Narratio, 1672, some attempt at a scientific description of the epidemic. End quote. Dr. Furnival has printed in his edition of Vicary some extracts from the Guildhall repertories relating to the appointment and payment of surgeons and physicians to attend the plague-stricken folk. William King, surgeon to the pest house, petitioned for a pension in 1611. He affirms that he had shown, quote, great care and diligence in curing of such persons as have been sent thither, and by reason of his attendance and employment there, his friends and former acquaintances do utterly refuse to use him in his profession. End quote. On September 10th, the city authorities agreed to give King a stipend of three pounds a year, which does not seem very liberal pay for his onerous services. In the British Museum there is a manuscript of some importance, Sloan Manuscript 349, entitled Loimographia, an account of the Great Plague of London in the year 1665 by William Boghurst, Apothecary. This was first referred to by Mr. E. W. Braley in his edition of Defoe's Plague Year, and it was analysed by Dr. Creighton in his work on epidemics. Dr. Payne printed an edition of the tract in 1894. Mr. Braley reprinted from the Intelligencer, July 31, 1665, the following curious advertisement. Quote, Whereas William Boghurst, apothecary at the White Hart in St. Giles in the Fields, hath administered a long time to such as have been afflicted with the plague, to the number of forty, fifty, or sixty patients a day, with wonderful success, 
by God's blessing upon certain excellent medicines which he hath, as a water, a lozenge, etc. Also an electuary antidote of but eight pence the ounce price. This is to notify that the said Boghurst is willing to attend any person infected and desiring his attendance, either in the city, suburbs, or country, upon reasonable terms, and that the remedies above mentioned are to be had at his house or shop, at the White Hart aforesaid. End quote. Boghurst gives a good deal of information in his book regarding the signs of disease and its treatment, and he describes the spread of the disease in London as follows. Quote, the winds blowing westward so long together, from before Christmas until July, about seven months, was the cause the plague began first at the west end of the city, as at St. Giles, St. Martin's, Westminster. Afterwards, it gradually insinuated and crept down Holborn and the Strand, and then into the city, and at last to the east of the suburbs, so that it was half a year at the west end of the city before the east end and Stepney was infected, which was about the middle of July. Southwark, being the south suburb, was infected almost as soon as the west end. The disease spread not altogether by contagion at first, nor began at only one place, and spread further and further as an eating spreading sore doth all over the body, but fell upon several places of the city and suburbs like rain, even at the first at St. Giles, St. Martin's, Chancery Lane, Southwark, and some places within the city as at Proctor's house. End quote. Dr. Payne writes, quote, it has always been a question whether the repeated recurrences of plague in Europe were to be attributed to reintroduction of the virus from the East, or to a fresh awakening of a virus already endemic. End quote. And then alludes to Boghurst's local explanation of the origin of the 1665 plague. He concludes his introductory by saying, quote, It seems probable that London still contains sufficient plague virus to start a fresh epidemic when the local and temporary conditions were favourable. The only temporary conditions of this kind that we know of are, first, the rapid growth of population in London, which caused terrible overcrowding, and must have overtasked the ordinary measures of sanitation, and, secondly, the long drought in the spring of 1665, which is referred to by Boghurst. The importance of this latter fact has been explained by Dr. Creighton, in accordance with Pettenkoffer's laws, but, on the other hand, the great plague year of 1625 was remarkably wet. The question is still one for discussion, and it may be left to the judgment of the reader, guided by the valuable materials which Boghurst contributes. End quote. From 1348 to 1665, plague was continually occurring in London, but it has not appeared since the last date on anything but a small scale. It has been supposed that in the Great Fire the seeds of disease were destroyed, but this is not a conclusive reason, and fears were expressed as to its possible reappearance in London after the Plague of Bombay in 1896-1897, and the Plague of Marseille in the summer of 1720 created a panic throughout Western Europe. Renewed attention was paid to the London Plague of 1665, and in 1722 Defoe wrote his renowned Journal of the Plague Year. 
We have no thoroughly trustworthy statistics of the earlier plagues, but Dr. Creighton gives particulars of the visitations in London in 1603, 1625, and 1665 in one table. Year, 1603. Estimated population, 250,000. Total deaths, 42,940. Plague deaths, 33,347. Highest mortality in a week, 3,385. Worst week, 25th of August to the 1st of September. Year, 1625. Estimated population, 320,000. Total deaths, 63,001. Plague deaths, 41,313. Highest mortality in a week, 5,205. Worst week, 11th to the 18th of August. Year, 1665. Estimated population, 460,000. Total deaths, 97,306. Plague deaths, 68,596. Highest mortality in a week, 8,297. Worst week, 12th to the 19th of September. To these figures may be added that, in 1593, 11,503 persons died of the plague. The figures of 1603 and 1625 in some reports differ from the above. Footnote. In a broadside referring to the Plague of London, printed by Peter Cole at the printing office in Cornhill, near the Royal Exchange, 1665, the number of deaths from plague in 1603, 1625, and 1636 are given as follows. 1603, 30,561 persons. 1625, 35,403. And 1636, 10,400. The numbers in 1593 are given as above. End of footnote. Some of the plagues devastated the whole country, so that there was no place for the Londoners to fly to for safety. But in others, the danger was more generally confined to London. In 1665, there were many places that the Londoner could visit with considerable chance of safety. But Queen Elizabeth, in her reign, would have none of this moving about. Stowe says that in the time of the plague of 1563, quote, a gallows was set up in the marketplace of Windsor to hang all such as should come there from London. Nowhere to be brought to, or through, or by Windsor, nor any one on the river by Windsor to carry wood or other stuff to or from London, upon pain of hanging without any judgment. And such people as received any wares out of London into Windsor were turned out of their houses, and their houses shut up. End quote. Monk, Duke of Albemarle, and Samuel Pepys were two of the most prominent public servants who remained in London during the plague of 1665. The clergy and the doctors fled, with very few exceptions, and several of those who stayed in town, doing the duty of others, as well as their own, fell victims to the disease. Dr. Hodges, author of Loimologia, enumerates among those who assisted in the dangerous work of restraining the progress of the infection, the learned Dr. Gibson, 
Regius Professor at Cambridge, Dr. Francis Glisson, Dr. Nathaniel Paget, Dr. Peter Barwick, Dr. Humphrey Brooks, etc. Of those he mentions, eight or nine fell in their work, among whom was Dr. William Conyers, to whose goodness and humanity he bears the most honourable testimony. Dr. Alexander Burnett, of Fenchurch Street, one of Pepys friends, was another of the victims. Footnote. Mr. Pierce gives some interesting facts in his Annals of Christ's Hospital respecting the effects of the plague in 1603 and 1665 on the condition of the Blue Coat School. During 1665, no more than 32 children of the total number of 260 in the house died of all diseases, although the neighbourhood was severely visited. End of footnote. Sweating Sickness the sweating sickness did not appear until the end of the Middle Ages, viz. the year 1485 when the Battle of Bosworth was fought, and there were five outbreaks of the epidemic up to 1551, after which date it did not appear again in England. Dr. Creighton has taken some pains to trace the origin of the disease. He writes, quote, The history of the English sweat presents to the student of epidemics much that is paradoxical, although not without parallel, and much that his research can never rescue from uncertainty. Where did this hitherto unheard-of disease come from? Where was it in the intervals from 1485 to 1508, from 1508 to 1517, from 1517 to 1528, and from 1528 to 1551? What became of it after 1551? Why did it fall mostly on the great houses, on the king's court, on the luxurious establishments of prelates and nobles, on the richer citizens, on the lusty and well-fed, for the most part sparing the poor? Why did it avoid France when it overran the continent in 1529? No theory of the sweat can be held sufficient which does not afford some kind of answer to each of these questions, and some harmonizing of them all. End quote. Those who wish to follow these inquiries must consult Dr. Creighton's book. Suffice it to say here that the author is of opinion that suspicion falls justly on the foreign mercenaries who landed with Henry Tudor at Milford Haven on the 6th of August, 1485, as the carriers of the disease. Dr. Creighton found among the British Museum manuscripts, additional manuscripts numbers 27 and 582, a treatise on the Sudor Anglicus, or English Sweat, dedicated to Henry VII by the author, Thomas Forestier, M.D., a native of Normandy who lived for a time in London. Stowe says that the sickness began in London on the 21st of September and continued till the end of October. Quote, of the which a wonderful number died. End quote. But Forestier gives the date as the 19th. The second sweat was in 1508, when many died in the city. In August, public prayers were made at St. Paul's on account of the plague of sweat. The third epidemic was in 1517, and the fourth in 1528. On the 5th of June of the latter year, Sir Brian Tuke wrote to Bishop Tunstall that he had fled to Stepney, quote, for fear of the infection, end quote a servant having died in his house. Anne Boleyn, 
her brother George and her father, caught the infection and recovered. Her brother-in-law, William Carey, died at Hunsdon. A large number of persons caught the disease, but a very considerable proportion recovered. The fifth and last outbreak was in 1551, and it is interesting to note that Dr. John Caius, the famous physician, wrote a treatise on it. Dr. Norman Moore describes this as, quote, the first original treatise published in England, by which I mean the first treatise in which the modern idea of observing the disease and writing a complete account of what was actually seen was carried out. End quote. In Mackin's diary, it is said that, quote, There died in London many merchants, and great rich men and women, and young men and old of the new sweat. End quote and Sir Thomas Speke and Sir John Wallop are instanced among others. Hancock, a minister of Poole, Dorset, refers to, quote, the posting sweat that posted from town to town through England and was named Stop Gallant, for it spared none. For there were some dancing in the court at nine o'clock that were dead at eleven, End quote. In taking stock of diseases and epidemics in London, we may note that many of the pestilences previous to the Black Death were due to famine. Dr. Creighton says of the year 1258 that, quote, So great was the pinch in London from the failure of the crops and the want of money, that 15,000 are said to have died of famine and of a grievous and widespread pestilence that broke out about the Feast of the Trinity, 19th of May. End quote. The number is given by Matthew Paris, and Dr. Creighton adds, quote, It suggests a larger population in the capital than we might have been disposed to credit. The same writer says that London was so full of people when the Parliament was sitting in the year before, 1257, that the city could hardly hold them all in her ample bosom. The annals of Tewkesbury put the whole mortality from famine and fever in London in 1258 at 20,000 but the whole population did not probably exceed 40,000. Smallpox and measles were not known to the ancients, and the latter seems to have been the first noted in the 14th century. Of later diseases, the name of influenza is Italian of the 18th century, but Dr. Creighton refers to several epidemics which may have been the same disease as those of 1173, 1427, 1510, and 1557. The new disease of 1643 was either typhus or influenza. End of chapter 7, part 3. End of section 13. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.